Celebrate Pride Month with TVO. Visit tvo.me slash pride for documentaries, kid shows, and educational resources. Discover inspiring stories of love, friendship, and resilience. Welcome, everyone, to the On Poly Podcast. I'm Steve Pakin. And I'm John Michael McGrath. This week on the pod, the trucker convoy clogging up downtown Ottawa, independent MPP Randy Hillier's offensive tweet, you can't put 501 people in Scotiabank Arena, but apparently you can put 12,000 in Tim Hortons Field in Hamilton. We'll figure that out. Or not. The NDP cry foul on Tory fundraising and some liberal plans on staffing long-term care homes. It's Tuesday, February 1st, 2022, so let's get to it. JMM, let's start with the story that captured a lot of attention this past weekend, and that was, of course, the trucker convoy in Ottawa. Now, let's establish right off the top here that probably the vast majority of people behaved just fine at that thing, but there were more than a few idiots who defaced war memorials, carried signs with swastikas, harassed people who were wearing masks, I mean, for goodness sake, someone defaced the Terry Fox Monument. Why would you deface the Terry Fox Monument? Anyway, we heard from Premier Doug Ford on Monday. Bring us up to date. What did he have to say? Uh, the premier said he was extremely disturbed to see people uh, vandalizing monuments and uh, showing symbols of hate. Uh, he said uh, in, a, in a statement to the press, uh, quote, uh, there, this has no place in Ontario or Canada. Not now, not ever. Any other members of the provincial government who've weighed in on this? Uh, as of when we are recording this, uh, which is uh, on Monday afternoon, uh, Lisa McLeod was one of the first cabinet ministers, aside from the premier, to chime in, uh, saying to the protesters, uh, you've been heard, please go home. Uh, McLeod, of course, is an Ottawa area MPP, and uh, she was uh, uh, you know, expressing that you know, kids have to go to school, workers have to go to work, and all of that is currently, or at least was impossible uh, because of the, the protests. Right. Someone who has been a vocal supporter for the convoy and was right in the thick of things in Ottawa is the independent MPP for Lanark Frontenac Kingston. That's Randy Hillier. Last week, there were some new calls from the opposition parties to enact some tougher measures for MPPs who step out of line. They thought he had stepped out of line. It was prompted by a, what shall we call it? Well, a rather uncivil thing that Hillier tweeted about Federal Transport Minister Omar Al-Gabra on Twitter. What are the parties calling for? Uh, they want the government to work with them to enact uh, tougher measures. <laughs> These are unspecified uh People might remember that Hillier was reprimanded by the legislature last October. Uh, he was using uh, pictures of dead people to lie to the public about the safety and efficacy of vaccines. Uh, if you had forgotten, uh, that's okay. I actually had two. It's been a long pandemic. Um, Ted Arnott, speaker of the legislature, has said he has no power to regulate the content of MPP's Twitter posts, uh, but that the House might consider further action to discipline Mr. Hillier. Uh, and this is really the key point. We have talked about parliamentary privilege uh, a lot on this podcast. It, it's been really relevant for the last two years. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the, the legislature has powers to discipline uh, MPPs uh, with, you know, they can make up measures if they want to, but in theory, could go all the way up to and including expelling the member permanently and declaring their seat vacant. Uh, in practice, that power has only ever been used once in Ontario, uh, and I don't think it will be used here. Oh, it has been used once. Okay, this is news to me. Uh, our, our slogan at TVOJMM, as you know, is never stop learning. So let's learn something here. Who is the only MPP ever to have been expelled permanently from the legislature? 
so I thought you might ask, and, and this is one of those things that like, I, I've been keeping in my back pocket. The tab has been open in my Chrome browser for years now. <laughs> uh, the MPP in question was one Adam Crooks, who was born in the township of West Flambro, uh, what is now part of the city of Hamilton. Sorry to steal the week's Hamilton reference from you, Steve. Uh, <laughs> Crooks was a liberal MPP who represented Oxford South and served as uh, attorney general and treasurer and actually education minister at different times. So very prominent very uh, uh, you know powerful MPP but he also suffered from uh, physical and mental health issues uh, and despite winning his seat in the 1883 election the legislature was actually asked by his wife not to allow him to take his seat uh, his mental health had deteriorated to the point that the legislature declared him and this is the language of the time so forgive me uh, but they declared him incurably insane uh, and declared his seat vacant so his friends and family could get him the care he needed Hmm, good. Didn't know that. Happy to know that now. I appreciate the Hamilton reference as well. And don't you worry, I may have one up my sleeve before we're done here. So just so you know. Now that's Adam Crooks. Take us back to Randy Hillier and where that's at now. So as I say, I, you know, I really don't think that MPPs are going to vote to expel Hillier. Uh, but you know, that in itself poses a problem for the legislature because, you know, Hillier has been reprimanded before. I, I don't think, at the, at the risk of reading his mind here, uh, I, I don't think he cares about censure motions. And so there's a question of, of what do you do if uh, an MPP's conduct is seen to be egregious by the majority of the legislature, uh, but the normal measures we use uh, don't uh, don't matter. Uh, in theory, there are other things they can do. There's, of course, a, an integrity uh, code for MPPs to follow. Maybe the, the legislature would amend that law, but you actually have to do that stuff. And it's not clear what the next step for the legislature is. Well, we know what the next step for the people are. The people always get the last say. There's an election in four months. If they like them, they can bring them back. If they don't like them, they can put someone in in his place. The people have the say. That is the ultimate remedy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's move on and talk about reopening Ontario. I know we did talk about this a bit last week, but I think we have to revisit this this week because, of course, new COVID protocols kicked in Monday just after midnight. And one of those COVID protocols, maximum 500 people at the Leafs, Raptors or Senators games in arenas that can seat, I don't know, 19 or 20,000 people. And yet... And yet, yesterday, 12,000 soccer fans gathered in the Hammer on Sunday. There you go. I got my reference in. They <laughs> gathered in Hamilton at Tim Hortons Field to watch uh, the World Cup qualifying game, which was fantastic, incidentally. Canada beating the U.S. 2-0 before all those deliriously happy fans, lots of Canadian flags being flown. But, but, more to the point, more to the COVID point, makes sense of all that for me. You can't have 501 people in a 20,000-seat hockey arena, but you can have 12,000 people in a football stadium in the middle of a COVID pandemic. Explain. Uh, well, uh, once again, I'm going to say that maybe we just can't. <laughs> but there are a few um, extenuating uh, circumstances, the biggest one uh, being the difference between an indoor and outdoor stadium. Uh, Tim Hortons Field is, is open air, uh, so it might not have been comfortable there in Canada in January, but uh, people were at least, you know, it was still relatively uh, fresh air, well-ventilated, you could say. Um, you know, everybody has to be vaccinated to attend these events. Uh, people are supposed to be wearing masks. Uh, I wasn't watching, but based on past performance at these sporting events, sometimes the mask adherence is not great, but, um, and, you know, the, the people who are most at risk, uh, people over the age of, uh, you know, 
60 generally, but especially people over 70 or 80, I, I am suspecting that they were not outdoors in January in sub-zero weather <laughs> in Hamilton. That is a reasonable assumption on your part, and and I, but I am going to follow up on one thing you said about mask adherence, because I have been to Tiger Cat football games in that stadium when they have been obliged to keep the crowds at a lower level than normal because of COVID. And let's just say, can I put this delicately? Mask adherence is not what you'd call 100%. Um, look, uh, I saw the highlights. I wasn't there at the game, but I did see the highlights. And very few people seem to have masks on in what I was seeing. I'm not being critical of that. I'm just making an observation and asking a question about, the, about whether that raises any questions about protocol consistency. No, I mean, it, it, it does. I think you, you have to acknowledge that there's been a lot of inconsistent rules. Uh, perhaps you would even call them incoherent. <laughs> <laughs> um, you could say certainly that, you know, before January 31st, before uh, 12.01 Monday morning, uh, things were still pretty locked down. Restaurants and bars were closed. Uh, but, you know, uh, a makeshift outdoor tent, you put out some, some heaters and you could, in theory, serve uh, food and beverages in that space, even though it could still be enclosed, it could still be uh, uh, at least potentially a risky uh, context. So yeah, there have been uh, hard to explain practices, uh, hard to explain public health measures uh, during this pandemic. Uh, that said, we did get clarity on, on one inconsistent measure that we talked about last week. Uh, theaters can serve food and drinks after all, so movies can now come with popcorn again in the province of Ontario. I am so thrilled to hear that because tonight... Now that the cinemas are open, this is day one that the cinemas are open, I'm going to see West Side Story tonight, and I am going to have popcorn, oh, and I'm so nice. glad to know that. Tell me how it is. <laughs> I will. I will. All right. Leading up to this, we have seen a change in messaging from the provincial government as well. Kind of an interesting, uh, nuanced difference here. Last week, both the Premier and the Chief Medical Officer of Health, Dr. Kieran Moore, had the same message of, we've got to learn to live with this. Now, that's a bit of a, a bit of a significant change, I think. What do you make of that? Uh, no, I think it was definitely a, a change. I think you could see some of this coming in recent weeks that um, there, there was definitely a sense of uh, the, as much as the Omicron wave has really, uh, I think, thrown uh, many different governments, both in Canada and outside Canada, for a loop, uh, there was definitely a sense that, you know, before Omicron, vaccines were working and after this wave has peaked and started to fall, uh, there's no reason to really think that the, um, the the vaccines are going to stop working, that we will go back to a state where, you know, things will be uh, relatively lower. We are coming out of winter in the Northern Hemisphere. So that is good news. And that was something that Dr. Moore uh, talked about, that, you know, you, you would expect that as the weather gets warmer and people spend more time outdoors, that uh, you will just see the, the COVID rates uh, decline. Um, you know, it was an interesting press conference because he, he was trying to balance optimism and hope with the fact that COVID has made optimism and hope look foolish before. Um, but, you know, again, let's let's go through some of the numbers, right? 90% of Ontarians uh, are vaccinated. Half of the kids, 5 to 11, have their first doses. Um, these are good things. I think, in particular, I would like to see that number for kids 5 to 11 come up even more. Uh, but 
vaccines are doing what they can, and there is clearly uh, an appetite to get rid of uh, some of these public health measures that we have been living with for a while now. And it's not just at Queen's Park, right? Uh, Toronto's uh, medical officer of health, Dr. Eileen Davila, said very similar things on Friday. Um, And I think that you have to sort of separate. There's individual stories about people who for medical conditions or perhaps the you know parents of young children who can't get vaccinated uh they individually may totally correctly feel that they are not as safe as they would like to be but from a population health level like the the 30,000 foot level that the government is really supposed to be you know making policy for this is starting to look as good as it's going to get, at least as far as vaccines go. Uh, you know, we are still going to have COVID circulating around in the population, but the people uh, at highest risk, <laughs> we talked about them uh, in the context of the uh, the soccer game, you know, elderly people in long-term care homes have all had either three or in some cases four vaccines now. So these, these public health measures uh, that we've lived with for, you know, almost two years now, there's just declining returns at a certain point. Right. All right, let's talk election fundraising. The election is, as we suggested earlier, just four months away. The parties are feverishly trying to raise money for the campaign to come. The NDP have raised what they say is a concerning issue between the progressive conservative government and a company called FH Health, which is a private clinic that offers COVID-19 vaccines and tests. John Michael, what's the issue here? So FH Health received a contract from the Ontario government, from the Ministry of Health, uh, to provide COVID-related services. It was a sole-sourced contract, meaning that the company didn't uh, have to bid in a competitive process for it. They just offered their services. The government liked what they had on offer. They signed a deal. Uh, and this, uh, we saw uh, private clinics show up in places like Yorkdale Mall, I believe, was one of them, where uh, people who wanted to pay money could get uh, a PCR COVID test, for example. This is not illegal. Uh, During COVID times especially, but even before COVID times, uh, in order to move uh, rapidly, governments sometimes don't go through the sort of open, public, competitive tendering process because it does take time, uh, and (laughs) sometimes it ends up in lawsuits. Um, and, And so this was just one of those cases. Uh, The issue is that, you know, whether Health Minister Christine Elliott signed, uh, you know, a a literal form or not, you know, the ministry gave this contract, she is responsible as the minister for that. And uh, the the political party that (laughs) that uh, uh, Christine Elliott got elected uh, representing received political donations from FH Health's board members, some employees and some relatives. Uh, They gave large donations, at least in some cases, the maximum allowable donation under the law to the progressive conservatives. Well, that is um, that is a remarkable coincidence that the company's president, the company's chair of the board, the company's chief medical officer and some of the relatives of those people all contributed thousands of dollars to the progressive conservative party. I'm really not trying to sound like a smart aleck here. But that's one remarkable coincidence, I'll say. Uh, yes, uh, we've seen this before uh, in you know political fundraising. It is hardly uncommon for um, you know you certainly see this in like leadership races where you know uh, a, a friend of the candidate gives the maximum allowable uh, amount, and so does their wife, and somehow they're you know 
minor children also somehow have thousands of dollars on hand to make donations. Uh, I, I do want to give a shout out to uh, Queens Park Today, the, who, who broke this story. Uh, you know, excellent journalism. Uh, the NDP have said that uh, $42,600 in donations uh, have now been identified as coming from people uh, with a connection to FH Health. That was work they did after Queens Park Today uh, first broke the story. Uh, now, you know, in fairness to the government, we don't know whether Christine Elliott personally met with any of the FH Health people at uh, a $1,000 ticket fundraiser that she held last September. But uh, clearly, the New Democrats want answers. And so far, the government has not explained uh, whether this is, as you put it, a remarkable coincidence, or whether there is uh, something more suspect, more nefarious going on here. And, and there may not be anything more nefarious going on here. We don't know, as you point out. But when I hear stories like this, it just always makes me wonder, why don't we have more ethical requirements in political fundraising laws? I mean, I know it's an election year, so the parties are really putting the squeeze on people to raise enough money to fund the campaign to come. But some of the rhetoric, I mean, I'll give you a little example here. Some of the rhetoric in the campaign ads just goes so far over the top that it makes you scratch your head. I mean, here's an excerpt from an e-blast from the chair of the PC Ontario Fund, which obviously is raising money for the Ford Conservatives. And it says, when Doug Ford said he will build Ontario for your families and future generations, he meant it. Only Doug Ford and the PCs will get the job done, not the Liberals. Heck, they sat around for 15 years and did nothing. Now, John Michael, I know truth is the first casualty in war, but that last statement is just... Well, it's ridiculous. <laughs> Help us through it. <laughs> I mean, I guess we can argue about what technically counts as building Ontario for families and future generations. Uh, but I can at least speak about my family and the youngest generation in it, my daughter, uh, who just aged out of full day kindergarten. Uh, one of the few aspects of the liberal legacy that even their critics don't attack anymore. And I can say that because even though the Tories were skeptical of full day kindergarten when it was introduced, and they actually were promising to pair it back as late as the 2014 election, these days, the Ford government is so committed to defending full-day kindergarten, it's actually the main sticking point in getting a child care deal with the federal government. And, you know, there's obviously plenty to criticize uh, the liberal record from 2003 to 2018. Uh, there's also things that the, the Tories have accepted aren't going to change, like the Greenbelt or closing coal plants. So, I mean, the idea that they did nothing is just, it, it makes me really tired, Steve. <laughs> I, I, I'm exhausted with you. I mean, it's it's we're not trying to carry any water for the liberals here, but it's just lazy. It's lazy and it's it's inaccurate. More importantly, it's inaccurate. Now, the other interesting thing about this ad is that it takes aim at the liberals, not the NDP, even though it's the NDP that is the official opposition and the liberals only have seven seats. What does that tell you? Well, I mean, the Tories may be thinking that the liberals are more concerning they are more likely threat to their re-election uh back in the before times we actually did an episode focusing on uh, attack ads and and one of the things about the 1995 election uh that uh one of the veterans of that election told us was uh the the tories just totally ignored the ndp uh and because everybody knew that bob ray was not getting re-elected my apologies to the former premier um and uh and and so they just hammered and hammered and hammered away at the liberals and that was 
you know, what they did, totally ignoring the actual governing party because they could see what the shape of the next election was. So maybe that's what's going on here. Uh, you know, we talked about polls last week. Uh, some of those polls have the Liberals in second place and the NDP in third, although uh, uh, <laughs> some polls also have the NDP in first or second. It's we said last week, it's really confusing. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but it's also possible that the Tories will have other ads focused on the NDP and not the Liberals as we get into the swing of the campaign. Right. So stay tuned. Let's move on to long-term care. The opposition parties have had a lot of criticisms about how the Ford government has managed this pandemic. Probably no issue has been more concerning than the long-term care issue, where the Premier, as we well remember, promised to put an iron ring around long-term care homes But that has surely not happened. Long-term care home residents make up a very disproportionate percentage of the now more than 11,000 people who've died of COVID-19 in Ontario. And it was the Liberals who last week put forward some suggestions for better protecting this sector. What's on that list, JMM? The list uh, starts with an emergency staffing plan for long-term care homes. Uh, That would include getting retired uh, healthcare professionals like nurses and personal support workers and doctors uh, back into service, Uh, getting the Canadian Armed Forces back into the most adversely affected homes. People will, of course, recall that uh, the Canadian Forces were brought into long-term care homes back in the first wave of uh, COVID. Uh, The Liberals also want to get internationally educated doctors and uh, healthcare workers into the mix. We know that this has been long before COVID. This has been an ongoing issue in Ontario where Ontario's regulatory colleges uh, have been accused of, let's say, protecting their turf and not making it very easy to uh, recognize credentials from uh, other countries, despite obviously the the pandemic need for uh, (laughs) every warm body that is is competent to to help out. Uh, And the Liberals would like to address that. Uh, they also want to reinstate pandemic pay for all healthcare workers uh, who continue to risk exposure to COVID-19. Uh, and uh, Stephen Del Duca noted that provinces such as Quebec have given bonuses of up to $18,000 to retain nurses. Uh, th- there are other aspects of the plan as well, but I mean, the, the emergency staffing plan there is really the core. And what about vaccination, vaccinations and testing? What have they got to say on that? Uh, The Liberals would also like to see all staff in long-term care settings have a mandatory booster shot and that residents obtain uh, their third and fourth doses of the vaccine. Uh, They they want to know what the status is of ventilation in all long-term care homes. Uh, A lot of, this is again one of these issues that, you know, will be familiar from the first wave of of COVID. Uh, A lot of long-term care homes are quite old. Uh, The ventilation and filtration systems uh, might be... uh, basically ineffective. Uh, and so they, they want more information about that. Gotcha. Let's stay with healthcare and talk about another important development in the healthcare system in Ontario last week. We well remember, we've talked about it here many times, that a lot of elective surgeries and diagnostic testing has been postponed or even cancelled so hospitals could deal with the huge influx of COVID-19 patients. Well, the government has now determined that those procedures can begin again which must be a very good sign for where we're at, yes? Uh, yes, certainly if you look at the the hospitalization indicators, the intensive care numbers, those kinds of things, those have started to trend downward in the last week. Uh, so, you know, definitely suggests that hospitals have got uh, a handle on tackling this, this Omicron wave and can now start to work on the backlog of surgical and diagnostic procedures. Uh, the province's financial accountability officer last year figured that it would take $1.3 billion in new money to clear the backlog of surgeries, and, and that was just from the first 
wave uh, of the pandemic. Uh, the government in its last budget update put about $324 million towards that, uh, which is obviously less and probably unlikely to make much of a dent in uh, what the Ontario Medical Association estimates are 20 million backlogged services. Uh, for example, if you want heart surgery, and I mean, who doesn't want heart surgery? Uh, the wait may be... I don't want heart surgery. What are you talking about? <laughs> I don't think you do either. <laughs> Uh, the wait might be 14 months long now. Uh, we saw a story recently of a woman trying unsuccessfully to get diagnostic testing despite having stage four cancer. Uh, this is something that the health ministry uh, clearly needs to make a, a very high priority. And, you know, we know that the government wants to do this, but they've been waiting for Omicron to loosen its grip on its hospitals. So that seems to be happening and we, we, we seem to be able to move forward now. Here, here. Let's talk about something called mandate letters. Now, these are the letters that each cabinet minister gets from the premier when they get appointed to their respective portfolios. The federal liberal government has always made it a point to make those letters public so that the public can know what each minister has been tasked with trying to achieve. The Wynn government did the same thing provincially. For whatever reason, the provincial Tories, this government, has tried to keep those letters private until now. What happened last week? So the, the CBC has been trying to get the mandate letters. They they went to uh, court to challenge the government, uh, and the government argued it needed to keep those letters confidential as part of the, the general principle of cabinet confidentiality. And that is a, a real thing in our system of government. The cabinet gets to, to keep lots of information uh, confidential. Uh, but in this case, uh, the province lost the court case. Uh, theoretically, those letters now have to be made public, uh, whether they will is another question. Uh, the government lost at Ontario's highest court, but they can appeal that to the Supreme Court of Canada if they want. Uh, as of this recording, we haven't yet heard about whether they will, in, in fact, appeal. So we've heard the official explanation for why the government wants to keep these letters private. They think it's part of cabinet confidentiality. Any other reason you can think of why they might want to keep these mandate letters private? Well, you know, call me crazy, but maybe they don't want us to know what's in those letters so that if the ministers fail to get some of the items done, uh, then we can't call them on it. Um, hmm. But, you know, I, I, I do think that... Some of this, I think, is just the um, the Conservative Party, when they came to power in 2018, I think many of the people in the Conservative Party really regarded the whole public mandate letter exercise as a PR stunt by the previous government. Uh, you and I have read those mandate letters provincially when that used to happen federally currently. And like they're not deep. Uh, communications of, of, of political uh, uh, direction, right? Th these are very clearly meant for public consumption. And whether you want to say that's just PR or not, that's another argument. But th there's nothing hugely revealing in them. Um, but at the same time, you know, the, the, the Tories just, uh, they, they believe that th they should not be compelled to make this uh, public. And, you know, it's like a, a tradition that started less than 10 years ago, really. So, you know. We'll keep an eye on this and see where it goes. I wanted to ask you next about the Roma Conference, the Rural Ontario Municipal Association, because you had the responsibility of moderating what they call the Bear Pit Session, where many members of the cabinet make themselves available, uh, virtually, of course, not in person, to answer questions from municipal councillors from all over Ontario. Just uh, share some impressions from this year's Bear Pit, if you would. You know, I have uh, watched uh, Bear Pit Sessions uh, when it used to happen live, and now this is the 
gosh, fourth time I've done one of these, either for Roma or for the Association of Municipalities of Ontario. Uh, Roma meetings happen in January. AMO meetings happen in August. And... Um, <laughs> I think a fair way to put it is, is the old joke about question period. They call it question period, not answer period. Uh, you know, some ministers, I think, engaged with the questions, uh, you know, directly and, you know, answered them as genuinely as they could. Uh, others were less forthcoming, maybe less genuine. <laughs> uh, some ministers were uh, clearly reading directly from a, a script and their responses were not always, um, let's say, directly responsive to the questions that were asked. <laughs> well, that's a, this is one of the things I wondered, because in some respects, I mean, you're moderating, but it's Roma's show. So did you have the authority to say to the ministers, uh, forgive me, minister, but you didn't come remotely close to answering that question. <laughs> Could you do that? Uh, no, I mean, we are trying to balance uh, interests, uh, you know, there's the interest of getting decent answers out of these ministers. And as a journalist, I weigh that interest very heavily. Um, but there's also the interest of trying to tackle as many different topics in what is a short amount of time, really. I mean, 45 minutes goes pretty quickly when you've got questions submitted from uh, basically, you know, hundreds of Ontario municipalities. And, and you know, I, I, I won't go too far beyond the, or behind the camera here, but I will simply say that for all the questions we asked, there were at least twice as many that we didn't get to. So, you know, in that specific context, uh, you know, I'm not sure that challenging the minister would have been as valuable as simply moving on to another possibly more interesting question. No, after all, I mean, the, the people who are listening to the answers are themselves politicians, and they, as well as anybody, know when a question has or has not been answered. Yeah. Now, I know, having been to some of these conferences in the past, when, when you can go in person, and when you can actually rub shoulders with hundreds of other local politicians who have the opportunity to buttonhole ministers who they might otherwise never get an appointment to see, that can be very helpful to the local cause. Does does a conference that's all online actually allow for that to happen? You know, ministers are still having like the, the programmed meetings, right? It's, it's all happening via Zoom or, or whatever conferencing uh, software that they are in fact using. Um, but, but those sort of programmed meetings are happening, but it's very regimented, right? You get like, you get your 10 minutes with the minister or whatever it is, and then it's on to the next uh, meeting. Um, I obviously have a a, a very sort of strange perspective because I, I, I wasn't, you know, able to to cover it because I was sort of attending it or, you know, participating in it rather. Um, you know, my sense is that the informal stuff is happening in, you know, emails and group chats and Twitter messages and that kind of thing. Um, and, uh, you know, people are finding space for that where they can, but it, it obviously it lacks some of that um, uh, dynamic that you see, get when it's the in-person meeting. And, uh, Quite frankly, I, I really, really hope that we get back to an in-person conference. <laughs> here, here. Let's go from rural to urban. JMM, you're a big transit guy, right? A certified transit dork, Steve. <laughs> that is absolutely right. That's my partner. Well, I ask because we know there are a few LRT lines that are always in the news for both good and bad reasons. Ottawa's Confederation line was shut down for weeks because of problems there. The Eglinton Crosstown line in Midtown Toronto is now big time over budget and behind schedule. And the billion dollar LRT line in Hamilton, another reference, thank you, that's supposed to be shovel ready. That's what they said. It's shovel ready. I guess that depends on your definition of shovel ready. What's the story there? 
Apparently, the timeline circulated by Metrolinx, which is the provincial transit agency that oversees these projects, uh, suggests it will be more than two years before any shovels get into the ground. Uh, so their definition of shovel-ready is perhaps a little different than uh, people in Hamilton who may want to uh, redo their driveways this spring. <laughs> <laughs> no kidding. Well, I wonder if part of the problem here is that unlike in other jurisdictions, the Hamilton LRT has been hugely controversial every step of the way. There has not been a strong consensus to build it in the way, for example, there was for the Eglinton Crosstown or the Finch Avenue one at the north of Toronto or the Mississauga LRTs as well. I'm sure that is part of what's going on here. Although, I mean, it's it's now funny to me in retrospect to uh, think about the strong consensus behind Toronto's LRTs, given uh, what uh, Doug Ford and his uh, late brother, the, the former mayor of Toronto, got into politics doing... Uh, Toronto's LRT is, oh boy, I could go off for that. <laughs> but uh, in Hamilton, you know, uh, we had this situation where the the then infrastructure minister, Catherine McKenna, came to Hamilton, made a big announcement that the federal government would back the project. But according to the former mayor and Hamilton East MP, Bob Bertina, who was a liberal, uh, he wasn't consulted on this or notified at all about the announcement. Uh, Bertina, incidentally, was opposed to the LRT, and he was so miffed at the this announcement that he chose not to run again. Uh, he is now thinking about running for mayor again, uh, though I, I really need to applaud you, Steve, for directing us back onto the topic of Hamilton, uh, your hometown again for this podcast. <laughs> well, I have to say, I, I'm just following the law here, JMM. You may have noticed before Queen's Park w rose for its winter break, they passed a very significant private member's bill requiring me to mention either Hamilton or former Premier Bill Davis in every podcast. And as a good law abiding citizen, I'm just trying to stay out of trouble here. Uh, now, Steve, I pay pretty close attention to, to the legislature, but could you remind me what that uh, private member's bill was called? Maybe the number of the bill? I don't recall seeing the, the lieutenant governor sign that. Well, as a matter of fact, I, I'm going to just take a wild guess here that maybe you were taking your daughter to be vaccinated that day, <laughs> and you missed this because I'm quite sure they passed it. I think it was called Bill 18, an act to require the hosts of the On Poly podcast to mention the Steel City or Ontario's 18th premier in every podcast. Again, I'm quite sure it passed three readings unanimously, and I'm quite sure the uh, Lieutenant Governor Elizabeth Dowdswell signed it with gusto and flourish. You didn't catch any of that? I really must have been sleeping that day. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. A guy named Charles W. didn't miss it because he tweeted this past week, I was getting worried about Steve Pakin during the On Poly podcast today for his lack of a Bill Davis reference until John Michael McGrath made one with less than two minutes left. That was too close of a call. <laughs> and I'm with Charles W. We have to follow the law, and I'm glad to say we have done so dutifully in this podcast. We have uh, preserved the honor of the crown and uh, the government here. <laughs> here, 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 here. Well, we always conclude this podcast with some Mishigas. No, with our favorite quotes of the week. And we'll have that immediately after we ask you to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. We do love your feedback, good, bad, or indifferent. Here's a nice note from Glendon James, who writes, Thank you so much, Steve and John Michael, for your stupendous job reviewing and presenting the most important news broadcast on politics every week. Quite frankly, I get so mad and frustrated watching all of it that I've concluded it is much better and much more sane to listen to your podcasts and watch your wonderful TVO show, The Agenda. You simply bring sanity to a political forum of what might often be described as airy-fairy propaganda. <laughs> Uh, Glendon, we appreciate that comment, and we do our best to keep the propaganda to a minimum here. Uh, at least on this podcast, the agenda is a whole other story. Oh, thanks, man. <laughs> appreciate that. Yeah. 
<laughs> you can also shoot us an email at onpolitics at tvo.org. We also remind you to read our weekly On Poly newsletter, which drops every Tuesday, same as the podcast. You can subscribe to that at tvo.org slash onpoly newsletter. Here now, my quote of the week, and I actually want to go back a week and a half for this quote to the so-called housing summit that the province held to try to kickstart some ideas for getting more housing built more quickly. Here is Municipal Affairs and Housing Minister Steve Clark assuring us he gets it. I live in eastern Ontario. I live in Brockville. I, you know, I'm, I'm in Ottawa quite regularly, and I, I understand the frustration that uh, that some individuals have that they just can't uh, find a, a place that they can afford to call home. And I think the the one thing I want to impress upon everyone on this call is we we really had a good sense of collaboration and cooperation with uh, the big city mayors and the regional chairs. And and I'm, I'm encouraged by uh, by this meeting, and I know the premier is as well. But we're gonna we're gonna take. Uh, the time that's afforded to us as a ministry, and we're going to look at not just Ottawa's official plan, but all of them that are in with us for comment. That's Housing Minister Steve Clark assuring Ontarians that something tangible will come out of the housing summit to get more homes built. And my quote of the week comes from Liberal leader Stephen Del Duca, who had a press conference on Monday morning that was uh, about the the Liberal Party seeking more protections for renters. Uh, But near the end of the press conference, uh, he had some very strong words for the Premier, who uh, at that point had actually not issued a public statement about the uh, trucker protests in Ottawa. Uh, And uh, Mr. Del Duca thought that silence spoke volumes. Uh, Here is part of what he said. What we saw take place in Ottawa is not Ontario. It's not the Ontario that I'm, I'm working hard to lead. It is not the Ontario that I will accept as the very best for my daughters as my wife and I are raising them. And it's not the Ontario that we are going to deliver. So Doug Ford needs to step up and do the right thing here. And sa- sadly, when he had this moment, this opportunity to show that he's a real leader, he failed. He failed the people of Ottawa and he failed the people of Ontario. And that's just not good enough. That's Liberal leader Stephen Del Duca speaking on Monday. We should mention, of course, that after uh, that press conference, the Premier did in fact uh, issue a statement uh, condemning some of the behaviour that we saw in the nation's capital uh, over the weekend. And that is this edition of the On Poly podcast for this week, produced by Katie O'Connor and edited by Matthew O'Mara, production support from Nikki Ashworth and Jonathan Hallowell. JMM, as my dad likes to say, stay positive, test negative. Stay safe, Steve. <laughs>